and welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast, episode 16. I'm Simon Longfellow. And I'm Marcus De Silva. On this week's show, we look at a company breaking the dividend ban, some positive news in the auto industry, Woodford one year on, as well as which theme will play out in the global economy post-COVID-19. And finally, in the big investment, we look at some of the main funds, investment trusts and ETFs which invest in the UK. Okay, let's kick off today. Simon, who has been breaking the rules on dividends? In a word, AXA, the French insurance company, they've decided to fly in the face of the regulators and pay out to shareholders. Okay, why are they doing that? Well, if we go back a few weeks, uh, much like here, the regulator in France decreed that companies should avoid paying money to shareholders as dividends because the insurance sector could be hit with a huge post-pandemic tsunami of claims. And so the companies were told to hang on to their money kind of just in case. Um, This was seen by many as a sort of highly unusual move by regulators, but also a prudent path for companies to follow given the huge amount of uncertainty. At that point, accordingly, AXA announced in April that it was postponing its dividend. Anyway, they've now come out this week and said that they wanted to balance the need for the company to have enough money to be solvent, in other words, with their responsibility to shareholders. So are they paying a full dividend? No, uh, they're not. They proposed in March in their annual report that they would pay €1.43 per share, but they're actually only going to pay out uh, $0.73. So uh, uh, quite a cut, but they would consider uh, paying out another uh, $0.70 later in the year. Uh, Shares in AXA rose about 10% when they made their announcement on Wednesday. Okay, what's the regulator said? I imagine they weren't best pleased. Uh, well, nothing as far as I can tell, um, but I would have thought you were you were right. Um, they had originally said they didn't want companies making any decisions on dividends before October. So this very much flies in the face of that. Okay, next, more on the motor industry. We've talked before about a number of individual manufacturers and how they're having a tough time. But I think you actually have some better news this week, don't you, Simon? Yes, indeed. It's Virtu Motors. Uh, They're the UK's fifth largest car dealership company. Uh, And when showrooms opened again this week, at the beginning of the week, it sold more cars on Monday and Tuesday than it would have done in normal times. Okay, how many more? Uh, 862 is the exact answer across a network of 121 dealerships on Monday and Tuesday of this week, which is about 200 more than it would expect to sell on those days under you know what they call normal circumstances. Uh, but they are saying it's the it's mainly used cars that people are buying, not new cars. Obviously, they are cheaper. And Virtue say that people are wanting a low-cost option to avoid public transport. So is there a lot of discounting going on to sort of get people through the doors? Uh, no, they're not offering uh, discounts, or at least nothing out of the ordinary. Uh, Chief Executive Robert Forrester has said this week that once the factories making new cars reopen, he says there would be some spectacular offers to boost sales. Okay, interesting stuff. 
So, Marcus, we've hit uh, an anniversary of a sad state of affairs, really. What happened a year ago? Yes, well, about a year ago, we heard of the suspension of Woodford LF Equity Income Fund. It was a a big fund, and the suspension meant that it, at that point, trapped about £3.7 billion worth of investor money um, in this particular fund um, at which at one point was was actually had about ten billion pounds worth of investors' money, um, and it really marked the beginning of the end for Neil Woodford, um, uh, the UK's most famous fund manager, and he finally shut his eponymous firm in October last year, just five years after its launch. And I think what was rare was this star status around Neil Woodford. Um, in the UK, we don't really seem to lord our investment managers, I would say, so much as maybe they do in the US. But here he'd really become a household name. Um, and that was based on the fact that he'd had stellar performance, really, over 25 years at his old firm, Invesco Perpetual. And where are we a year on? Well, there are a number of intermediary platforms. So uh, people that sort of sit between Woodford and, and his end investors. Um, that today still are nursing this enormous reputational hit from this whole palaver. The most notable are probably St. James's Place, the wealth manager, um, but also Hargreaves Lansdowne. Hargreaves is the top UK share dealing platform. What happened there? Yeah, um, it was surprised, but they couldn't really get enough of him. Um, that reputation that he'd had at Invesco Perpetual was really the sort of marketing stuff of dreams. And he was promoted individually and very heavily, uh, which is unusual to say the least. Um, so that meant that he went into Hargreaves, lots of Hargreaves multi-manager products, um, but mostly he was a big feature in their Wealth50 list. Um, and problematic for them was right up until the day that this fund suspension on the 3rd of June last year happened, which which left a lot, of pe- a lot of commentators questioning, you know, at that point, he'd already had very high profile blow ups in some of his investments, he'd had a long history of performance. But the particular thing that professional and institutional investors were very concerned about was these unquoted companies that suddenly turned up in his fund. And this is to say, a fund that is designed to allow investors in and out on a daily basis called daily liquidity. And and these stocks, unquoted as they are, so they're private companies that haven't yet floated, means that they you don't have the benefit of exiting those those positions in, in the same way. So the fund that these stocks were in didn't didn't at all match. Um, unquoted was not an area of his expertise either, really. So in the industry, um, this is known as style drift. The manager has drifted away from the, the style that you sort of know him for. Um, uh, and, um, and, and that left a lot of people sort of scratching their heads as to, as to how they could have really promoted this fund so heavily when it was really fresh. It was a new launch. You know, he may have had that, that reputation, but that was at a fund at a former company. It wasn't his new one with his own new smaller company. And were a lot of private investors affected? Yeah, there were a lot. 300,000 private investors, um, to be precise, were affected. Um, So not only did they nurse the heavy losses um, uh, because of his poor performance, but they're now one year on. Some of them are still stuck to some extent in the fund because £500 million 
Um, so basically, these funds were wound down and their assets were sold off and money returned to investors. But £500 million is still stuck there because it's in these unlisted companies. And when you lump on COVID, it means that, you know, they're not likely um, to be able to, to liquidate them anytime soon. Um, so there's a lot of hot and anger around this, which is very understandable because really it's a story of ego, greed and poor oversight from the people who are meant to be overseeing these exact things. Okay, next up, you were chatting to Ben Seeger Scott about what to expect from companies following the crisis. Ben is a fund manager who oversees around £7 billion worth of investments at wealth manager Tilney Group. What is the theme that's come out of that discussion? Yeah, I thought it would be interesting to bring up one of the points that me and Ben discussed in our interview, and this was around globalisation. Well, de-globalisation, which commentators think um, uh, is going to mark 2020, really, this year and and sort of post-COVID-19. So, you know, globalisation has been one of those big themes in economics for over 100 years, and it's basically referring to the interconnectedness of trade and people across across borders, across nations. Um, and proponents have argued that it has led to much freer trade, which has meant um, uh, a spread of prosperity and, a, and a, a much wider choice of products for consumers. It's also lent then economies of scale on a global level, so it's meant much cheaper products. It's enabled labour to move where it's needed, so it's given job opportunities across borders. Um, and that freer movement of capital has meant greater investment and therefore hopefully economic development in, in much poorer countries. Okay, sounds positive. But uh, there are downsides, aren't there? And the, the tides have turned against it, haven't they? Yeah, and I think there are problems with it as well. And I think the crisis has exacerbated those issues. So particularly the fragile supply chains um, has meant that we're, we're very exposed to what, what's going on in the globe. We're not very resilient. Um, it's allowed large monopolies to grow, really, or very large companies. You think of some of the power of some of those tech beasts there. You know, is it creating a transfer of power from government towards towards corporates? Um, there's also the hollowing out of cert certain industries where jobs have just simply, you know, disappeared from from certain countries, which has has, has left. Um, certain people, you know, wrong-footed in that way. Um, and actually, as, you know, capitalism meant to be this great equaliser, that's not what we've seen. We've seen a, a growing inequality. Um, and the environment, you know, the environment is becoming a much bigger issue. And, of course, the environment is not soothed by people hopping around the globe or, or you know, goods and uh, hopping around the globe. Um, ben said this. The recovery is not going to bring us back to where we were before the crisis anytime soon. Um, I think people are likely to, after an initial release, relief, I, I think there's no evidence that people are going to go back to, to using services to quite the same extent they did before. There's probably going to be some personal balance sheet rebuilding when people have sold down on their savings. And also, I think the outlook, whereas we've had before, everything's been about capital efficiency, so maximising your earnings, using you know just-in-time supply chains using globalization to, to reduce your costs i think the post-covid period might see a much greater focus on resilience um which is good for the global economy probably good for society i think that could hold earnings back so i think you know ben makes an interesting point there um it'll be what i think this will be a theme to watch you know on, on one hand you might have 
lower corporate and sort of capital efficiency. So you might see a reduction in earnings there. Um, uh, and we could see other things as well, like inflation coming through. Um, but this could be balanced by a greater resilience, you know, to, to um, global supply shocks and sort of what we've seen happening more recently. Um, and I think another thing is, is it could lead to some, some investment, actually, that's kind of much needed in the UK. One of the big things we've seen is this stagnant productivity since the 2008 crisis. So this is the amount that, you know, as a human, you, you, you produce when you work. And that has, has sort of gone nowhere. And, and that rising is important because it shows you the economy is becoming more efficient and more productive. And for some reason, it's, it's gone nowhere. And, you know, a large part of this is probably a lacking of investment um, in things like equipment. So this could shunt that, that trend. Um, it all depends on how companies will adapt um, to this broader theme of deglobalization. An interesting theme to watch, I think. Okay, on to the big investment, and we're going to take a look, as Simon mentioned in his intro, at the UK market and large cap investing here. So this is FTSE 100 stuff. Um, I think the broad case for UK shares to UK investors are probably, you know, more obvious. You, you, you know, you know the big companies really of the FTSE 100. They're world class. We have strong, balanced boards. Um, you know, there's an argument that, that the governance is better than a lot of US companies there. Um, we've got broad markets for our, our products and strong independent oversight, um, all that, that kind of structural stuff. Um, you know, um, at the moment, it might be attractive to invest. I think what's interesting here is that over the past three years, really, when you when you speak to global investors, UK shares have really been shunned. And that has been largely to do with geopolitical concerns, so Brexit and the prospect of a no deal and what that means for the economy. But also the COVID crisis is just is just added added to to that because UK markets took a particular pounding. Our response was deemed to be slow relative to other developed nations. I think of that picture of, of Cheltenham. Um, uh, and, you know, so while US markets, when you look there, they're almost back to where they were. I think they're around 3% off their former high. The FTSE 100 is still around 1,000 points off its 7,300 point high before the crisis. Um, uh, balancing that, though, you face you face risks. You know, um, if there's a double dip, shares of the riskier asset class, so, so they're much more on the hook for, for being hit. And um, so you've got to really consider that in the near term, it's bumpy, there's a, there's a risk these could fall much further. Um, so this is very much a, a long-term view that you, you're going to have to take. Simon, let's start with an investment trust. Well, first up is an investment trust managed by a duo at Janus Henderson Investors. Uh, James Henderson, who is a Henderson, if you see what I mean, and a lady called Laura Fall. This is the Lowland Investment Company, which invests in what it calls a broad spread of predominantly UK companies. And in fact, when I looked at this month's fact sheet, it's 96% UK, uh, 3% Ireland in round numbers. Anyway, the aim of the trust is to provide growth of your invested money, that's capital growth, and your income over the medium to long term. And in terms of that income, it currently has a yield way over 6%, although like many UK-focused investments, it's had a tough time recently in terms of that other objective of growing your capital. There are 111 holdings in the portfolio, uh, the biggest of which is Glaxo-SmithKline, 
But there are other names in the top 10 you'll know. People like Royal Dutch Shell, Prudential, National Grid and Direct Line, the insurance firm. Okay, and what about an exchange-traded fund, an ETF? Well, there's a very obvious choice for the ETF uh, exchange-traded fund this week, the iShares Core FTSE 100 ETF, whose job it is to track the performance of the 100 largest companies in the UK. And it seeks to provide investors with essentially long-term growth of their money. Unsurprisingly, it's a colossal fund, £7.4 billion pounds in size, and actually it was 20 years old in April of this year. It also pays out an income, as many of the companies in the FTSE 100 pay dividends, and at the moment that yield is 5.6%, uh, and that income is paid quarterly. With this being a tracker fund, there's no fund manager involved, so essentially the machine that runs it just tries to mirror the composition of the FTSE 100 as closely as it can. And the charges, as usual for an ETF, are low at 0.07% a year. The biggest holding in the fund is AstraZeneca, the pharmaceutical company, but it also holds GlaxoSmithKline, that's hard to say, HSBC, uh, and British American Tobacco, they're all in its top 10. Okay, finally, a managed fund. Well, this was a no-brainer, really. You talked about this manager, uh, Nick Train, in a recent pod. It's the Linsell Train UK Equity Fund, which aims to provide a total return. So that's a combination of the growth of your invested money and your income, greater than the total return of the FTSE All Share Index. The FTSE All Share just being another basket, another listing. Uh, it's around 600 of the 2,000 companies traded on the London Stock Exchange. That said, this is a much more focused fund, though. It only holds 26 different companies, so that's about a quarter of the number of the investment trust and the ETF we just talked about. Chief amongst those holdings are names like Diageo, the drinks company, Unilever, and Schroeder's, the fund manager. And in terms of yield, this one's a bit lower at 2.2%, and that income is paid twice a year. Okay, that's really interesting. Simon, just a reminder to our listeners, this is not a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold them. We don't know anything about your personal circumstances, so that really has to be a decision for you. These are just examples of, of the types of investments and strategies that we're talking about. Okay, thanks for that, and thank you very much for listening. That's all for this week. Don't forget to subscribe to the show through your chosen podcast channel, and you can sign up at stepstoinvesting.com to get more good stuff. Take care and join us again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.